what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. This was life-saving, life-changing information. And I know there are a lot of people on social media and stuff who say, oh, this stuff is overdiagnosed. All of a sudden, everybody got ADHD, everybody's autistic. They don't really get that it's saving people's lives and it's changing everything for them. Because imagine thinking that you're broken and you're failing and you're useless and you shouldn't be here. Right. And, And figuring out, oh, I'm exactly how I was supposed to be and I can make a life that works and feels good and I can thrive exactly how I am. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I am your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Courtney Munnings, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Courtney, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us to, to BS today. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. So let me let me tell the audience a little bit about you. I don't go into to great detail because there's this thing called Google and <laughs> LinkedIn and people cannot find everybody these days. Um, but Courtney is an attorney. Uh, she describes herself as autistic neuro a neurodiverse advocate, a speaker, a certified life coach, and she's been a makeup artist, which I find very interesting. Um, Courtney currently is employed with Diversity Lab. She's been there for about a year uh, where she specializes in the work that they do uh, for the Mansfield rule. And we'll we'll get into that in more detail later. He uh, previously was uh, a practicing attorney and associate at Pepper Hamilton, also known as now Troutman Pepper, for about eight years or so in their trial and dispute group. Uh, Courtney uh, received her BA at Temple University and her law degree at Rutgers Law School. Did I did I leave anything important out, Courtney? Um, no, that's everything. Okay, great. <laughs> so let's let's just jump right in. Um, I like to start out by asking folks to share with us, to the extent that you're willing to do so, your story, your personal story, your you know as as much as you'd like to, uh, your professional story, and also a little bit about who has been influential in your personal and professional journey. Okay, so me as a person, I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts, which is the home of basketball. Okay. Uh, I always say that I I recently learned, well, I recently learned I was autistic, but um, something that many autistic people do apparently is script. And so I learned, actually, someone said, you know, whenever you introduce yourself, you say you're from the home of basketball. And I was just like, what? 
So yes, I think that started when I moved away to go to college at Temple. Um, I told everybody I was from the home of basketball. So I'm really proud of that, I guess. Um, it's part of my script. So that's me. I went to Temple when I was 18 and I thought I was going to be a dentist or an oral surgeon. Apparently, I was not. Um, that was not for not me. Not meant to be. No, it was not in the cards for me. I didn't know um, at the time that I was dyslexic. I had all of these things going on with me. Um, I struggled. I struggled really badly. I kept on trying, though. I ended up um, spending six years in undergrad doing every single summer session. Mm -hmm. um, I took Calculus 3 so many times. I took it so many times that the the third time or so that I failed it, they changed the policy. So if you fail Calc 3, you got to go back and do 1 and 2 again. And so I spent years trying to pass the math prerequisites so I can get to the more advanced sciences, so I can go be a dentist or an oral surgeon. And then uh, maybe, I think it was my fourth year in, my mom called and she was just like, look, it's possible that you might not become a dentist and you should just graduate college. And so I switched my major to Spanish and I graduated and I, I let that dream go. And I took a year off. I was working um, all through college. I was working as a makeup artist um, for Mac and then just on my own doing weddings and photo shoots and things like that. Um, once I finally graduated college, <laughs> I ended up just applying, just trying to do something. I, I didn't, being a makeup artist wasn't great for me because of all of the uncertainty and you're going to a different place every day and I later learned I really love um predictability mm -hmm. so having to show up and meet these new people to do makeup and be in these sketchy places to do makeup for photo shoots and things it was pretty stressful and I just wanted a regular job and so I tried to get into law school and they really really shocked me by letting me in um but I did get in. I went to Rutgers in Camden, like you said, and it was the best time of my life. Mm -hmm. I felt so empowered. Um, I took a lot of classes that were recorded. I still didn't know at the time I was dyslexic, but I took classes that were recorded and I would just take notes, um, verbatim notes, <laughs> and just keep replaying until I got every single word that the professor said. Mm -hmm. And that really, really worked for me. And I did well. And at my now husband, um, my friend then, who became my boyfriend, um, he would take all my classes with me because I was this prolific note taker. <laughs> and, uh, so we kept signing up for classes together and I was giving him my notes at the end because he wouldn't take one word of notes. Um, and I'd share them with him. And he was like my, my social, my key to social success in law school. And I was... Mm -hmm his key to uh, academic success. Nice. Um, <laughs> so we were, he was in my little study group um, and we got through it. We got through law school, we got through the bar. Bar prep was another great time in my life. Um, I just love to learn and study. Um, but yep, I married him a little bit after law school and I went to work at Pepper Hamilton where I was an associate for eight years. I didn't really understand everything was going on, but I was a great worker and I did, I got great evaluations because I would do anything for <laughs> the job and the client and the team because I really just loved belonging. And that is my story. I, I burned out 
um, at the end, I burned out really badly. It was, I was ignoring myself for a really long time and I didn't really understand that. Um, and it just got to the point where I couldn't anymore. And I ended up in psych care, unable to do like the basic uh, daily living functions. I wasn't taking very good care of myself. I was really, really, really down and I was unsafe. And I ended up um, taking a long leave. Um, took six months leave. I did partial hospitalization, which is like all day therapy, like it's your job. Um, in, in groups, learning all of these things, coping strategies and ways to communicate and get your needs met and all of these things. Towards the end of it, a friend was like, I need you to read this. And I, and I just kept putting off. Um, but eventually I did. And it was just like about autism and everything kind of fell into place. And I sent it to my mom. And I actually ended up searching my text. And a year before that, my mom was like, do you think you could be autistic? Mm. And, and like, so people, it's it's weird. It's the kind of thing that when you know it, you kind of know. But, you know, as a person, you don't really think of yourself necessarily in those types of terms. You're just normal to yourself and you're kind of just living. But apparently all of this time I have been kind of compensating for my differences and just fitting in anyway and doing whatever it took to meet everybody else's schedules and needs and expectations and looking and sounding a certain way, but really bending myself in a way that was detrimental. And now I'm recovering. Um, I'm at a great job at Diversity Lab, which much different hours than um, <laughs> law firm does and you know different expectations and the people are a little less stressed out because there's a little less at stake. And they really, really accept and um, embrace and protect me. Mm-hmm. And I'm recovering from all of those years of ignoring myself to just get the job done. Wow. So, wow. Um, that I'm, I just want to say bravo to you, but I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I feel very empathetic and, and, and I'm sorry that, that you went through what in some respects was kind of torture. Just you know, because our system has expectations that everybody be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying, what I want to understand is at what point, how long ago did you, were you diagnosed as autistic and how long ago, at what point in this journey did you realize that you were dyslexic? Okay, so this was all around the same time, and this was around May 2021. Mm. Um, so, and before that, around December 2020 is when I just, I was just, I just thought it was, you know, normal mental breakdown kind of where I'm, everything is bothering me. I'm really sensitive and fragile and stressed out about the smallest things. My phone could chime and I'm nervous about what I'm missing or didn't do or, you know, I I just thought it was just a kind of a temporary issue. Mm-hmm. And I, but I didn't know that it was kind of the culmination of a lot of things being unmanaged for a very long time. Cause, and on top of, you know, so on top of these things like ADHD, I've also have all of the kind of related um, normally co-occurring type of conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, And my brand of it is just 
perfection, trying to be perfect all the time. So every single day I have a full face, face of makeup, my hair is done, I'm presenting like I have it all together. I remember one day my secretary said to me, <laughs> it was a very, very stressful, crazy day, and she said to me, you are always so calm under pressure. Mm. And I remember thinking like, what? <laughs> it's like, if you only knew. <laughs> how could you think that and and now that I understand masking mm -hmm. I I understand like so much of my effort goes into presenting a certain way and that's draining but I, I didn't get how how differently I was kind of showing up um than how I actually felt until like and because to me I'm highly anxious and I'm always stressing. And did I do the wrong thing? Did I say the wrong thing? I'm checking every email seven or eight times. And to the other people around me, I'm just so calm. Um, so that was really, really striking. But as far as like dyslexia itself, it was around that same time where I, I learned like that's one of the co-occurring conditions for people with ADHD. You're going to possibly, you're going to be, a, it's a bigger chance that you're dyslexic. And so I did these tests and I, um, went to an optometrist too. And he's like, physically, my eyes are doing a ton of work to look at a word. Mm -hmm. And so a lot made sense because I remember maybe I was a second year associate. Um, a partner came to my office. He had sent me an email and said, can I talk to you about this? And it was just like a billing entry. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, like, what did I do wrong? Um, that was what I was thinking. And so he came in and he was just like, this took a long time. <laughs> um, and I'm telling you this because I don't want you to become known as the slow associate. And while that wasn't nice, <laughs> it, it kind of was mm -hmm. because people don't tell you things. They just don't use you again or right. they just write on your evaluation that you're slow. And so I learned so that at that day it was like I had read a whole bunch of cases and written talking points for him for a phone call and that took too long and so I said to myself no I don't want to become known as a slow associate what can I do and that was the day I decided to <laughs> if I put if I put the text that I'm reading into a software that reads out loud, I can just see how long a, a normal, not slow person, and that was the words I used then, how long it would take them to read and I can bill for that. Um, but in that process, I found like, whoa, hearing it read is so much better. And so that kind of changed my practice. I wasn't fighting through, you know, all of these pages of case law. I was just getting it read to me, billing for that time and moving on. And, and so I wasn't um, taking too much time on my task. I didn't know the term dyslexia then. I, I found out later, but I had been accommodating dyslexia for much longer than I knew I had it. So let me ask you this growing up, because I've, I've, uh, I've known kids who weren't um, diagnosed with dyslexia until maybe sixth grade or seventh grade or something like that. And it's a huge aha moment for them. And, and it just changes their lives, lives in their educational process substantially. You didn't have, there was no testing. You had no idea. And did you not have any like extensions of time on tests or any any of that uh, no no accommodations your entire life 
Right. So I had no accommodations. I did. So one thing I learned is that you kind of just get more tired towards the end. And so as I'm processing so much more, reading becomes harder. So that's one thing. But I do remember when I was in high school, I said to my mom, something's wrong. I can't read. And she was like, what am I? I just can't read. I can like read a whole page and I don't know what was said. And so she went up to the school and was like, my daughter can't read. Like, what are you, what are you mm-hmm. doing? And they were just like, well, she can clearly read um, because I did make good grades. Mm-hmm. And so there was really, she didn't have the, the understanding then um, that you can compensate for these things. And the teachers didn't either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now when I read about ways people compensate, like one of the things that I would do is I actually got in trouble for this at school one time is I would read ahead. If I'm in a situation where someone's going to call on me or could call on me, I've already read the page and kind of figured it out. And so by the time they call me, I've rehearsed. And Mm -hmm. so I was either just working harder. um, I just got through it. Um, Nobody could help me when I said I had concerns about reading because I obviously could read. Um, and now it's like, oh, yeah, some people really would process it better if they heard it instead or there's different fonts you can use for dyslexia. But back back then it was just, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Your your scores are good. <laughs> You're doing fine. And it was that was that. It was basically a deal with it. So so I know. One of, well, and I told you this when we talked before, one of the reasons this is really fascinating to me is because uh, my daughter graduated from, when she was in college, um, she she was getting really frustrated. She got frustrated in high school, uh, but she did really, really well. She got, she got frustrated in college. And then ultimately, once she graduated, was having issues with anxiety and was diagnosed as uh, with obsessive compulsive, uh, you know, uh, issues or I don't I don't want to call them issues, but a diagnosis. And since then, I've been really um, interested in 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 um, you know just follow thing follow these uh, stories that people have. And it's become much more, especially since the pandemic, I feel like it's become much more talked about, particularly in the neurodiverse con- community. People are are uh, letting other people know that they're neurodiverse. Yeah. So can you help us all understand what that means? What What is, what is neurodiverse? Um, and I know you're not a doctor and all that, but from your perspective and your ability to help us educate us, uh, how do you how do you define neurodiverse? Okay, so th- this is a a big question, and it really depends who you ask. If you talk to a doctor, they're going to talk about it in terms of developmental brain dysfunction or or something like that. And they're going to talk about it in terms of kind of dysfunction or impairment in your communication, sociability, learning, attention, mood, those types of things. Um, 
But if you're just talking about it from kind of the neurodiversity standpoint, where mm -hmm. there's like a reason for all different types of people to exist, it's just that you may be diverging from the norm in some way, from just a typical standard type of way to be, if there, if, if anyone is that, um, you're, you're different whether it's in the way you behave or the way that you move or the way that you're processing things, you're you're conforming a little differently to the to the standard. Um, and it, it shows up in different ways. And some people, they can kind of report to you that they're experiencing or perceiving things in a different way than it seems like other people are. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other people who you can see for yourself um, right away. It's more apparent to you that they're either moving differently or they're they're just they're communicating differently or they're socializing much more differently there there are just a lot of ways that you're you're developing differently that it may stand out to the group um and neurodiversity and celebrating neurodiversity is the idea that everybody gets to be the way that they are yeah and it should be included and they should be respected and protected and accommodated where needed and there's no one way that's better than the other i love that i i love that celebrated uh and that's what this this podcast really is about right and and celebrating differences authenticity uh overcoming stereotypes which you have to do if you're neurodiverse and let people know about if you're if you're if you're no longer masking right mm -hmm. um but talk about intersectionality girl right. <laughs> I mean, you are i mean folks can't see you but you're a beautiful black woman who is uh an attorney who's dyslexic who's autistic who's uh all of these and, and successful i mean that i i can't think of very many more in intersectionality uh, uh, or much more intersectionality than that. Right. So thank you. Um, <laughs> it, so the thing is, and I was talking about this recently at a, a, one of our Mansfield uh, meetings, I, I was already a Black woman going into big law. And so part of what they teach you <laughs> is about how you can't be mysterious and people have to like you and know you and want to include you and people are going to see your mistakes more. Um, just because a black person wrote a product, um, there's, there's studies that show a black person writing a brief, um, people will catch more mistakes. Right. Even the same the same written product, people will just see more mistakes on it if the person who wrote, if they think wrote it was black. And they tell you that like one less than one percent of of the partners are black women, and so I, all I had was all these statistics, and I had all these people calling me the wrong name and confusing me with the other one, and so it was just like I knew that it was supposed to be harder for me. It just that's just the way that it was, and then on top of all that, I have these kind of differences in how I socialize and how I'm coming across that I didn't realize at the time were working against me. Um, I just, I don't wanna go to mixers. I don't like it. I don't 
I just don't like it. And so and mm-hmm. I'm not just casually walking into knocking on somebody's office like, hey, I'm just coming by to shoot the breeze. That's <laughs> right. not my personality at all whatsoever. I'm not doing small talk in the hallways. Like there were a lot of reasons why I was at a disadvantage um, just because of what people perceived of me and then my own skills kind of in in mixing and integrating and learning the unwritten rules and just climbing up that way. And so I really, really just had to work very, very, very hard and bill a lot of hours and just do whatever was asked of me and be just liked and loved by everybody because there there were a lot of reasons that had nothing to do with me and my actual work um, that I might not have been successful. Right. And so, you know, that is, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, you know, especially when you talk about firms that are requiring associates and other folks to go back to the office. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen the uh, reports or articles by people of color or or underrepresented folks who have been thriving in, in, you know, in work from home and Zooms and, you know, phone calls and stuff and, and are happy not to have to worry about the whole water cooler Mm -hmm. situation, you know, and it's, it's just so interesting because there are a lot of us who are like, you know what, this is better. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily that person, although I can be that person. Cause I, I, you know, cause because you're black, you have to code switch so much mm-hmm. and it's exhausting, but you know, it's like that it, what people aren't thinking about is how many people aren't getting spoken to at the water cooler because of who they are or who are not getting invited to happy hour or not getting invited to things. And so it almost evens the field mm-hmm. to, to be where everybody's at home to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Listen, work from home is one of the best things that ever happened in my professional career. Um, it was very, like aside from even the people, like before I get to the people, it was cold in the office. It was cold. It was bright. It was weird. And I was uncomfortable. And I really didn't like it. Um, but when you had the people in, um, especially after, because I started in Philly and then I moved to another office. So I was the only Black person. I was the only Black lawyer. Um so it's just like, it's like, you know, are people looking at me? I got these long braids. <laughs> um, you know, my body type is a little different. I I don't know if that's okay to say, but it's I'm, there's just like a higher anxiety level of knowing I do not really fit in. And then people don't fully know me. They're not fully comfortable with me. And I don't know how to do a whole lot about that. Because again, I don't know how to talk to you about... <laughs> small talk and the weather and so when I'm not really building up these close relationships it's just like you're just people who say hi to me and I don't know how you feel and I don't feel fully you know a lot of people were very nice especially mm-hmm. when I moved to the smaller office they were very nice but they didn't know me mm-hmm. um and so I still I wasn't sure how they were judging me and it was just another thing to think about and that takes energy um and so it's it's 
so much better being at home. It, I'm comfortable. I can take a break um, and my break doesn't just have to be in another weird cold place where I don't know people. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just at home and it's I'm so productive. I'm not losing two hours driving. I am not worrying about things that have nothing to do with my actual job. I'm just being myself. I'm being authentic. Mm -hmm. I'm being, you know, kind of grounded. And I'm not stressing about the other things that people judge that aren't just my work product. Now, speaking of judged, uh, to have gone into your 20s, really, uh, maybe even longer, without knowing what was going on, did once you brought that, I'm assuming you went to your family and said, here's what's going on. Yes. Did they judge you? How, 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 you know, did they accept it? You know, it's almost like you were coming out in some ways. Absolutely. So I text my husband, like all this stuff I've been reading, and I'm like, I think I'm autistic. And he's like, I'm processing, but that makes sense. Okay. Okay. And so because it's like, and and I always, I'm always so thankful when I talk about how accepting he was, you know, he's a Caribbean man, he's old fashioned, he doesn't believe in a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he's also the guy who lives with me mm-hmm. <laughs> he and when we go to a, a baby shower or something he gets a plate and he gets it for me because I'm so awkward about like being up in front of people and he let me eat what I have to eat and then he'll eat the rest because I'm so picky about my food and I also don't want people to know I don't like it and so he has been accommodating me we've been mm-hmm. together 11 years so it's like I also have OCD so it's like we're we can be anywhere and I'm like I gotta go wash up um, so it's like I'm having this big bag of deodorants and, and cleansers wow. and things, and he's witnessed that, and he's helped me, and he's watched the door for me at the bathroom so nobody comes in at the house party because I'm just nervous about everything. So it's like when you tell somebody who's seen you be very different from anybody who's known, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not a crazy thing for him to kind of believe. Um, and so he was perfectly, perfectly accepting and supportive. And he's like hosted, a, um, he's like interviewed me for certain events. And he's really into not just supporting me, but talking about it in the in public. He's not like ashamed or weird about it. And that is really, really great. Um, my mom is also like, <laughs> she can't stop telling everybody about it. She's she, <laughs> And we also, like, I've had, like, my nephew was autistic, so there are other people in our family who we've known and loved who were Mm -hmm. autistic, so we didn't have to, like, overcome a crazy negative feeling about it, and so we kind of had a head start, which is great, but my mom um, called me last night, and she was like, you just saved another life, and I'm like, what? Wow. But she was talking to someone on the plane, and she got to talking about her daughter, the woman, and she was, and she says, at first she was like, I think your daughter's neurodivergent. And then like a couple of minutes later, she said, I know your daughter's neurodivergent. And she talked about, you know, certain things that she was doing, like pulling her hair and just um, very, very, very stressed out, these high anxiety behaviors and social differences. And everybody's been very, very proud um, that I figured this out, relieved that I don't have the same level of stress and wondering what's wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm exactly how I'm supposed to be. Yes. And they're promoting it. Now, my dad, my father's a neurologist. His pr- 
his medical perspective is you have to be more impaired to be saying that. If you look for things, they're going to find it. And it's true. It's true. But like, why was I looking for things? I was struggling. You know, mm-hmm. there are many people who um, you could say have ADHD or autistic or, or whatever it is, but they're not suffering and they're they're doing just fine and they have a life on a lifestyle that accommodates them and their needs and they're they're not burnt out or anything like that. And so they're not going to be doing online tests and going to the neurologist and getting all these diagnoses. And that's perfectly fine. Um, But some of those people, if they did go looking, they would qualify for these conditions because they are just built differently or, you know, from what somebody would call a standard or typical neurotypical person. Um, Some people say a neuroconforming is another way to say it. But, you know, it's fine. And as I've done more work and talking about accepting and kind of promoting people and building bridges between others who have different access to the privileges and and skills that you have, he's been very, very proud of me. You know, he's not, you know, he's not thinking I should have never said this or did this. He's just, that's not his, he wouldn't have done it, but he's proud of the work that I'm doing to kind of uplift others who are suffering. And so I really couldn't ask for a better family and a village. It's been really, really great. The I've changed. I've grown so much. Even people, people who knew me a couple of years ago, um, at my old firm who who are connected with Mansfield and see me on Zoom at my new job, um, one of the guys was like, you're glowing. <laughs> like, That's you're awesome. So much better. And this this was life saving, life changing information. And I know there are a lot of people on social media and stuff who say, oh, this stuff is overdiagnosed. All of a sudden, everybody got ADHD. Everybody's autistic. They don't really get that it's saving people's lives and it's changing everything for them. Because imagine thinking that you're broken and you're failing and you're useless and you shouldn't be here. Right. And, and figuring out, oh, I'm exactly how I was supposed to be. And I can make a life that works and feels good and I can thrive exactly how I am. I love that. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to cry. Um, <laughs> so... Let's let's switch to telling us a look because you've mentioned Mansfield a few times and you know I know that's how we met as a matter <laughs> of fact. I, so here's the deal: you do so well in person that two people with whom you know two of my colleagues came to me after we met at our function in LA that you attended at uh, the LA Coliseum and said you should interview Courtney for your podcast. Um, so that that's how well you present, even though you're freaking out <laughs> while you're doing it. So, um, and, but that was a Mansfield, our Mansfield, cert, our fourth annual, or it was either four or five, fifth year and a um, Mansfield event celebration. So tell our audience to the extent that, that you are comfortable about Mansfield and what you do at Diversity Lab. Okay, I'll be happy to. So I work at Diversity Lab. I'm a Mansfield Rule Specialist. And the Mansfield Rule is designed to help boost and sustain diversity in law firm leadership. And it does that by making firms or asking firms to create systems that will kind of 
formalize their consideration of a larger pool of applicants uh, and for certain positions. So instead of just uh, saying, you know, this, I think these people should be um, practice group leaders, you know, and, and just kind of going with people who are in the know already or friends of the managing partner or whatever it would be. We are asking firms to actually track who they're considering for those positions because, you know, historically, a certain type of person is ending up at the top all the time across the board. And right. so, We've found that, you know, we have data showing now that the early adopters of the Mansfield rule are having an increase in their diversity and leadership at a much better rate than firms who are not doing Mansfield because we're asking for these certain positions. Can you make sure that you consider it's not a hiring quota, but just consider like look at the pool and make sure that 30% of that pool is historically underrepresented people. So that for us right now is um, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, um, women, lawyers with disabilities, and LGBTQ plus lawyers. And so making sure that you're not just sticking with who's at the top of your mind, um, but who is actually at your firm who is qualified to do this thing. And so every year we change Mansfield a little bit and firms sign on again to continue trying to push the needle in diversity. But they, the people on the calls uh, every month talk about how it changes things. It changes things to just not have the usual suspects <laughs> um, getting opportunities and it's from you know managing partner that's part of mansfield but even to pitches who's who is being considered to be on pitches for new work it can't just be your friend it has you have to look at your firm and who's there and you have to be you have to make sure that certain people are not just living along the margins for their whole career and so i help firms with their Mansfield implementation and throughout the year they have all these questions we, we do all this work trying to support them to make sure that they're considering broader pools and also part of Mansfield is transparency so it's not just making sure you're considering everybody we also want the rules to be written down um, associates should know how to become partner um, they should know how how you know what is needed to be on the executive committee? What are the skills and what are the responsibilities? So it's not just friends of people who are now on the executive committee. It's everybody at your firm can go on your intranet or wherever you have it and look at what does it take to be in leadership at my firm? And because of Mansfield, we have it's some we have the numbers on this that many firms did not make these policies written <laughs> let alone accessible they didn't have them written they didn't have them before mansfield and so one of those um categories that we're asking you to have is are the job descriptions and the election and appointment processes written down and accessible for your associates and everyone to be able to figure out how they can become a leader at your firm and Mansfield is working and I'm very, very proud of it. I I wanted I was proud when I found out my firm was doing Mansfield when it first came out. And so mm -hmm. now to be able to work on it myself is really rewarding. Awesome. And and I, you know, well, you know that I'm a I'm a proponent of Mansfield. I um have worked with Karen um 
for years uh, in terms of making sure that that you know we get the word out and then it's celebrated and that's one of the highlights of my years throwing that party. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think um, good for you to for landing someplace that yep. allows you to be you and be yourself and also do. Um, such um, important work. Um, so what do you like to do for fun? Hmm. So I, what do I like to do? My favorite, like the best thing ever is going to the beach. Um, (laughs) my father lives in the Bahamas. And so we, you know, on all of our school breaks, we would go visit him. And a lot of the times he would take us to Atlantis, the resort, um, and we would just go on the beach. And so I just, I love water, period. Like today, every day I take a nice, you know, bubble bath or whatever. Um, I'm just, the ideal is just relaxing near water. There's actually, there's this thing called, it's a place called Float. And there are like these, it's kind of, kind of like a hot tub but it's bigger and it's like salt water and mm-hmm. it's like so salty that you float when you get in it mm-hmm. and like that is like a very relaxing thing that I love to do really just for fun I like to relax I like to spend time with my husband who's very 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 funny um <laughs> <laughs> he like makes up songs and like even that's why I said bar prep was so fun because he's making up songs about con law and we just spent all day singing and reading um but yeah I just I like to relax I don't do too many wild and crazy things you know I'm not like a adventurous person I'm not doing a bunch of zip lining and things I just like to have you know relaxation and time with family and I'm pretty pretty low-key is your husband a practicing lawyer now? Yes, he is. He works um, at a firm in Jer- like South Jersey. Um, and he does, he's, my husband is my opposite in a lot of ways. He's very courageous and confident. He's got a lot of criminal clients, criminal, mm. me, criminal law. <laughs> They're not criminals, but he, um, he, he does, he's in court every day. He does some family law stuff, immigration. He's also an interpreter. So he mm-hmm. speaks a whole bunch of languages, he speaks French, Creole, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese. Wow. Um, yeah, he is. I'm fascinated with him. Even before we were romantically involved, I thought he was like the bee's knees. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I admire him so much. He's so interesting and courageous and funny. Um, so people, everybody loves him. I always thought he would be so successful. I was worried about myself and I was mm-hmm. like, but I know he's going to be good because he's just so magnificent to me. Um, and I, I really, he's, he's a character. He's very, very interesting. Well, that, I mean, I love the, I can, I, I'm not seeing you, but I can hear the smile <laughs> on your face. And so it's, it's, uh, it's adorable. Uh, and I get it. Uh, I'm opposite of my husband. Everybody loves him. You either love or hate me, but everybody <laughs> loves my husband. Um, and uh, I, I, so I can definitely relate. And I think we're about July 5th, we will have been married 36 years, I think. Goodness. So, uh, it, 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 you know, I think those opposites work. Um, yes. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What what stereotypes, getting back to beyond stereotypes, <laughs> uh, 
What stereotypes do you feel like you've had to overcome? Uh, and, you know, were they true or or do you think they were unfair? That's a good one. Um, so it's mixed. And so I'll say, um, like, socially outside of work, it, I think it's based on my appearance. Like I said, I was a former makeup artist, so I'm always having a kind of a full full makeup look. And I'm mm-hmm. always, and I kind of like, <laughs> I'm, I don't know, I'm a certain type of way that makes people think I think I'm better than them. They make, mm-hmm. they think I'm conceited. And so um, something that a lot of people will say, a lot of women will say is, I, I didn't like you at first. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just be like, what? Because I'm, I'm quiet, so I I appear standoffish mm-hmm. um, because I'm kind of feeling out a situation before I say anything that might be judged. And it's really just my own anxiety at play. But because I don't, I might not look like I'm like it's shyness, you know, I, they it because I look like I'm calm and I'm poised, they take it as being conceited. Um, and I remember at work. <laughs> A partner said to me, uh, weren't you a pageant girl? Okay. <laughs> I was like, no. And he was and he apologized profusely. Wow. So sorry. I'm very, very and I didn't understand why that was an insult. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Why are you sorry? Like, I would love to be a pageant girl. That's <laughs> but like, you know, there's whatever the perception he had of them, he felt like it was insulting if I wasn't that. And so that's the kind of vibe I'm giving. In my like, I wear Barbie t-shirts. I'm like so into the stereotypical girly type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I people who look at me think that I'm really kind of poised and more aesthetically focused, and they may think maybe I'm missing something inside it before they get to speak to me. Interesting. So, but so that clearly is not the case. But it is a. It, it, you know, it, it, what's interesting is that people, what what you don't know about people, what a friend of mine likes to say is what they're carrying around in their backpack, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you you never know what somebody is carrying and um, how it's affecting them and, and whether or not what you see is really what you're going to get. Right. <laughs> Very much. Yeah, you can't judge me by what you think people who look like me are. I it just doesn't match. People who and I don't I don't even like saying that because like what what should I be based on how I look? Like if there's there's no correlation. Right. But it's like people who do that are always wrong. I'm a very loving, compassionate person. I'm just sometimes waiting to feel things out before I say something. And when you fill in the blanks, you're usually going to be wrong. Right. Yep. So we're almost at the end. I could talk to you forever. I would love to talk (laughs) to you forever, but I'm probably exhausting you. So Uh, um, what, what, what words of encouragement or advice do you have for others about embracing your authentic self, either, you know, personally, professionally, as associates, lawyers, as a black woman, well, all, you know, any of those things? I mean, what 
what advice and encouragement would you like to to give folks? Um, my advice would be try to consider that the way that you are is the right way to be and that all of the things that you're trying to become or be more like or do differently, like maybe you don't have to do all that. The You can't sustain a lot of the things that you try to do to be like someone else or to be what you think you're supposed to be. There's a reason that you were built the way that you were and it's easiest to be what is natural to you. And of course you can't you know, do a whole bunch of harmful things to other people and expect that to be okay. But as far as who you are and kind of what you like to wear and what you like to eat and where you want to be, like faking those things, it takes a toll on you and you really can't keep it up forever. You really can't mask forever. You will burn out. And so just consider that telling the truth about who you are, whether it's what you say or what you do or where you work, Um, All of those things that feel best to you might be the best thing for you to be doing. So in other words, do you. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Well, Courtney, I mean, I really, really, really want to thank you uh, for being here to BS with me today. Uh, It's been enlightening for me. It's been fun for me. Um, And I'm really, I'm proud of you. I'm very proud of you. Um, So thank you for being here. I'm I'm honored to be here. I've listened to several of the other episodes and I can't believe I will be among those greats. So I appreciate you for even thinking that I should be here. And I look forward to knowing you more in the future. Absolutely. You deserve to be here. (laughs) So thank you again. And thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. It is. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS. Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.